0: Hello and welcome to the Qubit Guy podcast, brought to you by Classic, the quantum algorithm design company. My name is Yuval, and my guest today is Tom Wong, physicist, quantum information scientist, and author of the new book, Introduction to Classical and Quantum Computing. Tom and I talk about teaching quantum computing to high school and undergraduate college students, about his cutting-edge research in quantum algorithms, and much more. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please let us know how we did by emailing hello at classic.io, that's hello at CLA SSIQ.io. Hello, Tom, and thanks for joining me today. Hello,
1: thank you for having me.
0: So who are you and what do you do?
1: So I am a physics professor at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska, um, and I primarily work with undergrads doing quantum computing research and teaching quantum computing.
0: And you have a new book that I think as I saw today is, is number one on the Amazon list for quantum computing books.
1: It's number one for new releases. Obviously, it's not going to be number one compared to all the the uh, of the of the seminal you know titans in our in our field. But yeah, it's it's, it's I do have a new textbook um, that's based on a class that I've been teaching at Creighton to undergrads as an introductory quantum computing course. An interesting thing about this is that the only prerequisite is uh, trigonometry, and so you know a lot of the educational materials that exist with quantum computing and textbooks, they're more targeted for a graduate level student, but this is made really for, you know, freshman, sophomore level students uh, in undergrad, and maybe even you know, high school students that are more advanced.
0: So I, I downloaded a copy and, and I read most of it and I think it's, it's lovely. I, I do hope I know most of it, although I haven't taken any of your exam <laughs> quite yet. How early do you think it this can be taught? I mean, would you teach it to to ninth graders? Would you teach it to eleventh graders? I mean, where where would you recommend people start to get into quantum?
1: Um, so I guess there's kind of two questions with that. One is where at what level could I teach the material in my textbook, and the other question is at what level could you teach quantum information science more broadly? Um, so with my textbook, I mentioned that the prerequisite is trigonometry, so Basically, once students are familiar with the unit circle, they could tackle all the material in my textbook um, because my book does cover the more advanced math that they'll need. So it covers linear algebra and reviews complex numbers and things like that. Um, maybe we sh- I should mention for the listeners that, that I actually made this textbook free, that there's a free PDF of it on my website at thomaswong.net. Um And if for people who want um, a, a more affordable print copy, I just upload it to Amazon. So you can buy it cheap. Copy as well, but again, the for the PDF it's just free on my website, so anyone can download it. So yeah, with that, you know, there's plenty of high schoolers who who take trigonometry who could then you know learn learn quantum computing. Um, Beyond my textbook, I think the basic ideas of quantum information actually can be taught without all the mathematics um, even to to kids. Um, And I think there are actually pushes to do this. So for example, um, there's this. Uh, initiative in the US called the Q12 um, uh, Educational Partnership. I think the website is q12education.org or something like that. And it's basically people recognizing that there's a need to have um, a future quantum workforce. And to do that, you need to introduce ideas in quantum information science at younger ages. That way students um, are aware that the field exists, And then they can think, oh, you know, when I grow up, I want to be a quantum information scientist because a lot of times students go into a particular field simply because that's what they've heard about from their parents or from their teachers or school counselors. And if quantum computing is not on people's radars, they they won't know that these jobs even exist. Um,
0: So you've been teaching this for a number of years now. So what's the most difficult concept for your students to grasp?
1: Oh, that's a really tough question, I think. I think. I, mean, I don't want to say that there's no tough concept to grasp because then it sounds like I'm bragging or something. But I think. I think some of it depends on the type of course that you teach. Because my course is not a conceptual course, like I actually teach them the math that they don't know. Um, because we actually do the math, I think students understand these. You know, very quantum concepts like quantum entanglement and superposition and things like that because they've seen how it actually works with the math. And I think what makes some of these concepts hard to understand to a lay audience is that you're trying to use analogies to describe them instead of just knowing what they actually are. And I think that's when things like entanglement you know, can, can become very confusing. Um, and so I think um, at least with the with the topics I cover in my classroom which again are you know introductory topics I'm not teaching a graduate level course I think I think that the basics are actually accessible to students and even the basics of you know entanglement and superposition and all these quantum concepts they're actually not too bad and I think that might be a very good takeaway actually which is a lot of times quantum has a reputation of being mysterious or that only the like brightest minds in the world can can understand it and can comprehend it and can contribute to this field, and I want to break that stereotype. I, I really think that anyone can uh, understand and uh, contribute to to quantum. And so, um, in some sense, we've had we've had marketing issues at the field because we've marketed it as something that is spooky. But in fact, um, just like anything you learn, once if you take all the necessary steps in order to understand it, it shouldn't be spooky anymore. Because the job of scientists is for the things we're studying to not no longer be spooky because we understand it. I mean if you have a little kid and you talk to them about even like how to multiply numbers when all they know is you know how to count on their fingers. Multiplication sounds something that can be intimidating and that they could never understand. But of course, you know once they go through school and learn addition and subtraction, and once they get to multiplication, it's like, oh, it's not too bad because they've taken the steps necessary to to grasp it. And so I think I think we need to convey that about quantum computing, that maybe for where you currently are, it, it is a little bit of a reach, but you just need a couple of steps filled in and then it's, it's something that,
0: that can be grasped. So let's make a sharp turn and actually go to sort of modern day and some of the more advanced things that you're working on outside the book. And then I do want to come back to the book. So, you know, people are familiar with the uh, famous quantum uh, quantum computing algorithms, you know, Shores and Grovers and deutsch and so on. Why are they so few? I mean, wouldn't you expect that by now there'd be 30 or 50 major quantum algorithms? Mm-hmm.
1: I think a big reason is actually that we don't have Big enough quantum computers for people to play around with and to try. And what I mean by that is if you look at the evolution of classical computing, you know, back when classical computers were first being invented, there were certain problems that people had in mind for what they would do with these classical computers. And because of that, you know, I think there's some famous statement by a CEO at the time who said that the world market for computers is five, because those were the only, you know, they had such a limited set. Of problems in mind for what classical computers could do, but once computers became available to everyone and more people could be involved, um, people started coming up with all sorts of uses, such as this, you know, podcast that we're recording over the internet, um, or even a lot of classical machine learning. Like a lot of it, like the reason why we use machine learning is because it just works. Like people have tried it and it works, and there's not necessarily. Um, the most rigorous theoretical underpinning for why machine learning is so successful. I mean, there's some like general, uh, like senses for why, but in terms of you know the rigorous mathematical computer science type proof, like that doesn't even exist with classical machine learning. And so, I think in the same way with with quantum computing, yeah, we have those you know handful of kind of big problems that we could solve with quantum computers, but really, I think a most of the applications won't be discovered until the quantum computers are more available for people to play with. And you just try it, try something and see if it works. And then later on, you know, the mathematicians and theoretical computer scientists can fill in the the theoretical understanding for why it works.
0: So what are you working on? What kind of algorithms are you investigating?
1: So I work primarily with quantum algorithms that are based on the quantum versions of random walks. Um, So random walk is just when something... Uh, hops around randomly. And it turns out that this this process is uh, very useful for classical algorithms. And in the same way, it it turns out to be a very useful way to design quantum algorithms. And in particular, I look at quantum search algorithms. So imagine you have some type of network and you have your quantum uh, particle that's jumping around on this network in a superposition because it's quantum. And it's trying to look for a particular node. And it turns out that depending on the structure of that network, a quantum computer might be able to search quickly or slowly. And so I've investigated a lot about what different properties of the network might be important for a quantum computer to search quickly.
0: Is that related in any way to Monte Carlo algorithms that also have some sort of random walk built into them? It is related, yeah. Um, you can think of a
1: quantum walk as being like a quantum version of a Monte Carlo algorithm or a, or like a Markov chain. Um.
0: Understood. So when I look at the book and you explain these algorithms, well, here's how I build an oracle for a few qubits and here's how I do this and, and so on. What do you think happens when people, let's say I, I I read the book, I did all the exams, I know what's what's there. What's the gap between the book and actually creating something truly useful in a corporate quantum computing environment? What's missing or what do people have to go through to get there? Yeah. Um, I guess there's
1: different... Well, one of the nice things about where quantum computing currently is is that there's a lot of educational resources. So I don't claim that my book is the only one out there. Um, There are a lot of resources available that even a lot of quantum computing companies have put out. And they have whole uh, you know, lessons and even free e-textbooks on how to use their devices for potential like optimization problems and things like that. And so there are a lot of, um, there is a lot of work right now and a lot of material on how one might be able to use quantum computers for industrial problems. Um, currently the quantum computers aren't big enough as, you know, to solve any of these problems usefully beyond, you know, or better than what our existing traditional computers can do, but the idea is to start experimenting with these small quantum computers. That way when we have bigger ones, we can hopefully apply them to actually solve problems that we can't currently solve. And so uh, I would definitely point people to those types of of resources.
0: And in terms of your research, do you see it having uh, commercial applicability?
1: Uh, there could be because you know searching is a very important problem. That's that's why uh, Grover's algorithm is is so celebrated because you know even though it's uh it's a quadratic speed up not an exponential speed up, it's a very universal type of problem. And so you can almost think of my research as you know looking a little bit more into the details of Grover's algorithm, like what happens if your data is not. Um, is structured in a way where you can't just jump from one piece of data, one node, to another node directly, where it's arranged in some type of structure. Um, so yeah, I think searching is a very universal problem. Um, in terms of when it will be commercially viable, it might be a while because you know quantum computers are—you uh, know—it's a—it's a very tough engineering problem. Um, and also, you know, our classical computers are actually just very, very good. And so. Um, you know, it's going to take a little bit of time, I think, for quantum computers to start to do things that classical computers can't with just a, like a, a more modest polynomial speed up.
0: So if apologies to the random walk in my questions, let's let's go back to the book and some of the basic concepts. Yeah. Um, I think that when people learn about entanglement, they, they get sort of the value in terms of uh, quantum communications or, or key distribution and, oh, if I change one, then the other changes, so you would know. And so on and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you explain to someone the value of entanglement in the computing uh, realm mm-hmm. of, quantum, of quantum? Yeah.
1: So in our book, we talk about what uh, entanglement is, um, which is basically a, a state where um, where the... How should I describe this? It's like... A, so so an entangled state is a state where all your qubits are entangled or mixed together in some way, right? Where if you measure one qubit, it affects the other qubits, which is the opposite of a state where that is not true, which is called a product state. So in a product state, your qubits can be thought as being individual qubits where you can interact with one qubit without affecting the other qubits. So if there's no entanglement, meaning you have a product state, um, you can actually simulate a product state uh, efficiently using classical computers. Um, And it's because, I guess I'm guessing this is a more advanced audience for your podcast, so people might know a little bit about quantum computing. It's because the number of amplitudes that you have to keep track of for a product state actually grows linearly with the number of qubits as opposed to exponentially. And so because of that, a classical computer can store the entire quantum state for a product state efficiently, and it can uh, act on it efficiently as well. So basically, if there's no entanglement, a quantum computer is only as good as a classical computer in that regard, because a classical computer can do everything that that quantum computer can do. So if you want a speed up, you need to use entanglement, essentially. So I think that is the big motivation for why it's important in computation. You basically need it if you wanna do anything better than a classical computer.
0: As you look at uh, quantum applications today and and going back to the commercial use, Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, hype and fear around uh, shore, uh, with regards to oh, I'm going to break the world's financial system, but that's still a few years away. When you talk to industry colleagues, what is the algorithm or class of algorithms that they use most, more than others, uh, in their uh, in their work? Hmm. I think it's going to depend a lot on the industry, of course.
1: Um... I mean, if you're talking about uh problems that are more around quantum simulation, quantum chemistry, things like that, then you know it's basically trying to find ground states you know so that's a very general thing in a lot of other industries, it's basically solving um solving differential equations um and in finance, that's true you know for different financial models, things like that um in, in under in other industries, it's how to optimize things, how to optimize your like flight schedules, you know, things like that. So uh, I, I think there's a lot of variation, actually, depending on the industry, which which also makes it very interesting. Um, I mean, that's like asking with with a traditional computer, what are the most what are classical computers used most often for? It's like everything. <laughs> so yeah, I, I don't know if I can give you one specific uh, area.
0: Uh, That's fantastic. So Tom, how can people get in touch with you to learn more about you and your work in the book? So my website, thomaswong.net
1: is the best place where you can see um, all my research papers. You can get a link to download my free textbook. Um, And so, and at the bottom, there's also my contact information on my website.
0: That's perfect. Thanks so much for joining me today.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.